across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pints. My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? Delicious. <laughs> Good afternoon. Welcome to Flavour with Alan Alder, Sue Bailey and me, Matt Bentman. Today, we're back in lockdown, but with lots of good food and drink to talk about. Yes, and a book about food and drink too. In fact, no less than Caroline Eden's new book, Red Sands, and that's published officially this coming week. Being in lockdown doesn't prevent you from foraging for food, and we have Steve Thompson, the foraging chef, to guide you as to what is to be found at the moment. There's a cheese stall on the market that's been there for 22 years, so we thought it was high time we went to speak with them. We've also got Rosie Sykes talking about making Christmas puddings and sourcing good ingredients. And we've lots of local food and drink news too. Let's begin with the new book from Caroline Eden. Like its predecessor, Black Sea, it's a food and travel book, though this time the area travelled is rather further away. I spoke yesterday with Sarah Lavelle, publishing director at Quadrille, about it and began with its dramatic cover. I must say, it's an astonishing book. I've never seen a cover like it. It's an absolutely stunning cover. I think it's even better than Black Sea, which was also so beautiful, but it's sort of obvious from the title how we wanted it to look. We wanted the reds, we wanted gold, we wanted... Texture, um, so we kind of we threw everything at the finishes on that. <laughs> it, well, it seems to suggest to me that as a publisher, you must have an awful lot of confidence in the book. Oh yeah, absolutely, uh, and in Caroline, a Black Sea was such a huge success. It was so well received, and she won so many awards. I'm, I'm pretty much sort of swept the board in terms of food awards for it. So we absolutely, we knew that people were going to be anticipating this one. Yeah, and, and I'm just so pleased with the way, way it's turned out. It's absolutely beautiful. Yes, well, we had uh, somebody come round to the house uh, a couple of days ago and, and I had uh, a copy of the book on, on the table and they just leapt on it. They were just immediately attracted to it. And I've never known that happened before, so it's clearly, <laughs> it's clearly working. Okay, so this time, I mean, uh, Black Sea was travel and, and food in the, in the countries uh, surrounding the Black Sea, and this one is Central Asia, a lot less well-known to people from Britain. Yeah, that's right. Probably people would know the words of Samarkand, for example. That was Caroline's first book. But it's her chief area of interest as a, a travel journalist. And so the, the idea around Red Sands started as a plan for her to go around the countries of Central Asia. And, and in the end, she couldn't go to Turkmenistan. But, uh, it's, not, it's not a good place for foreign Western reporters. So it, Red Sands covers the countries of Kazakhstan, Kyr- Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. And actually, Caroline's in Kyrgyzstan at the moment, um, where she's, she's learning Russian <laughs> or improving her Russian. <laughs> yes, well, I can say that 
knowing Russian there would actually be an advantage. She was on um, Radio 4 recently from our own correspondent. She was, that's right, yeah. Um, she happened to be um, in, I think she's in Bishkek at the moment, and she happened to be there when there was a sort of overnight revolution of sorts, and so she was tweeting and reporting from that. I love the way the book started, uh, of her journey in a, in a vehicle across the desert, you know, which was very hot and quite bumpy, and coming across a desert cafe. It was... The writing was just so, I don't know, so compelling, so evocative. Yeah, it is so evocative. I mean, Caroline is just so, she's so amazing at kind of taking you with her on that journey and for you absolutely to, you, you almost see through her eyes and you can imagine exactly what it's like. And I think, yeah, it was that, it was that experience that convinced her that this was going to be the idea for the next book. And then I noticed that she tweeted the other day that it was two two years ago she'd gone into Stanford Travel and, and bought a map of the um, Kegelcum Desert, which is the centre point of, of Red Sands and the Red Sands in question. Stanford's now under threat, apparently. Yes, indeed, yeah. Terrible. Uh- now that we're back in lockdown, and even when we weren't back in lockdown, uh, travel abroad was difficult, do you think books that contain an element of, of travel are are more appealing to people? Well, yes. I mean, I hope so. I mean, actually, when I was working on the, um, the contents of the book during the first lockdown, and honestly, it was such a, it was such a pleasure to just read it, you know, when I was trapped. Um, at home and yes, yeah, sort of tra- vicarious yeah. <laughs> travel thanks to this book and I think that the food as well makes it so much uh, so much more accessible to people really I mean oh, Caroline talks a lot about as she travels around she talks about uh, you know the people there the geography the region the history um, the culture and how that's affected and influenced the industry and agriculture in a- each place but it's always it always sort of comes back food food is always the the center point and that's what she does so well and it's a particularly interesting area because it's sort of as well as having been seen a lot of conflict it's got these political and economic influences of both russia and china which is sort of pulling it in different directions so there's a there's so much that's fascinating about it and as you as you said earlier it, i don't think that people know that much about the region incredibly varied in terms of terrain and in terms of the food and in terms of the industry and the people. Caroline arranged the, the book. It's almost like a series of essays as she goes from place to place. So actually, you don't even need to sit and read it from start to finish. You can you can dip in and kind of sort of dip your toe in the waters of a particular area because they're all sort of discrete essays. And one of the things that I think that comes out really clearly on it, and I think it's very interesting, is how... I mean, she talks about food as being, well, people get together and there's sort of mutual enjoyment and as I suppose, something to talk about. That's right. I think that's what, um, that's what is at the heart of, of Caroline's writing. It always, you know, it does always come back to food because it is a common, it's a shared experience and it brings comfort and it brings joy um, as well as being, you know, a necessity in terms of, of survival. Yeah, I mean, we can all identify with, you know, being in an incredible cake shop. There's a there's a description of the cake shop that I think is called Crendel in, in 
pompadour and and her descriptions of those these extraordinary cakes and the fact that they make a sort of ton of cakes every day and things like ice butterfly biscuits I thought sounded so beautiful and then I think from that shop she buys a sour cream and peach cake which she uh, recreates the recipe for and it's very very straightforward easy recipe as are most of the recipes in the book and some which I mean some like one called Ella's Carrot and Honey Jam, and you, you cut the carrots into very thin pieces, and it's like a marmalade. I mean, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, I mean, some really interesting and, and unfamiliar things. I mean, I guess the probably the defining dish of the re- region is plov, which is a a dish of it's sort of rice with cooked meat, and usually with a fruit element as well. She's got one in there that's lamb and quince. And also this another theme is this, bread, uh, non-bread, which is a yeasted sort of flatbread that often has kind of fruit and, and nut elements in it as well. But everything is, yeah, very, very sort of straightforward and, and it's all about, you know, just fla- maximum flavour from kind of minimal ingredients, really. And also, I think another feature of the book is the, the photographs. I mean, there are some wonderful photographs, one of a, a walnut forest yeah. Uh, there's a picture of, I can't remember what it was called, but the capital of Kazakhstan, which was a sort of modern capital. Yes, Caroline had a photographer, Teo Kay, who um, also did the photography on Black Sea, and he travelled with Caroline to most of the areas. Um, not quite everything, so some of the photos are Caroline's as well. And then we do the food photography separately, so we do that in um, London. And we were doing that just as everything shut down, actually, in March, just got in under the wire. I was amazed to see that, I don't think she says a lot about it, but uh, that Tashkent has a pumpkin museum. <laughs> yes, I think she mentions it in the intro to a recipe. Um, yeah, that's just in a sort of private house. It sounds, sounds very bizarre. <laughs> I think there are so many memorable things in the book, really. There's about the Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan as well. That's where it was the centre cent- of the Soviet space programme. I think that's really interesting and I um, there are two other stories that I particularly love there's one where she goes to dive bar in Shimkent and she just talks about having this impromptu drinking session with all of the locals <laughs> and then her sort of subsequent hangover the next day and I think the other really memorable memorable piece is when she goes to the sanatorium that was a Soviet sanatorium from the 1930s and it's this sort of grand dilapidated building where they still they use radon water and she's slightly freaked out by this idea (laughs) and showers as quickly as she can to get get out of there so i just thought they were some funny um and interesting essays worth mentioning yeah and there's a recipe associated with the sanatorium as well i think wasn't there Yes. Yeah. Anyway, uh, a superb book and uh, and published. I know it's available from independent bookshops at the moment. It, it officially publishes on the twelfth of November, but hopefully, yes, everyone can uh, can find a copy, get hold of a copy, and um, and enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a new organisation, isn't there, that links independent bookshops together, and you can order online from it. Yeah, there are a couple now actually. So there are alternatives to the big. The big A. Um, <laughs> there's uh, hive.co.uk um, will give a contribution, a donation to an independent bookshop of your choice. And there's also um, bookshop.org, which only started this week. Yes, that's um, the one I've I heard about. That they um, give a percentage to independent bookshops as well. 
so even though the official publication date hasn't quite arrived, it is available. Right, and uh, Caroline um, pops up quite often on Instagram as well, doesn't she? Yeah, she has picked up pretty beautiful photos, yeah. Um, she's very active and, and sort of uh, also uh, chatty on Twitter. And, um, yeah, if, if anybody gets the book and makes recipes, then let her know <laughs> <laughs> and send her a photo. I'm sure she'd be absolutely delighted. <laughs> Good. Caroline's book is called Red Sands and she can be found on both Twitter and Instagram as at Eden Travels. Well, as you could probably tell, I really enjoyed the book and you can order it from your local bookshop online. Okay, let's have a first look at local food and drink news. And as you'd expect, there's lots about lockdown. Here's a quick summary. Calverley's Brewery is open for takeout beers Wednesdays to Fridays 5 to 7 p.m. and Saturdays 3 to 5 p.m. And you can also order beer from their online shop for delivery the next day or in Cambridge possibly the very same day. All three branches of Hot Numbers are open for takeaway food and drinks. Gwider Street and Trumpington Street from 8 till 5 and the Roastery in Shepworth just off the A10 from 8 till 8. And they'll be doing sourdough pizzas at the roastery too. Bridges is open for takeaways and deliveries. That's in Bridge Street. Steak and Honour in Wheeler Street is open for delivery and takeouts. And their vans are still operating too. But you will need to book online. Mill Road Butchers has announced that you can order and pay for what you want over the phone and collect from the shop at your convenience. And Food Park is continuing to operate, but all food must be pre-ordered. There's an order form on the website foodparkcam.com. Lal Bag in Bourne is open for takeaway and deliveries Monday to Friday from 5 till 10pm, Saturdays and Sundays from 12 till 2 and again from 5 till 10pm. Bushelbox Farm Shop in Willingham is open. OK, that was our first bit of the news. Now on to our next feature – We've visited plenty of food stalls on Cambridge Market over the years and we've heard their stories. But this next one is about David Fishman. Now, he runs the cheese stall, and he has since the late 90s. He was the protégé of Bob Wesley, who started the business of selling British and continental farm cheeses some 50 years ago. He's got a huge amount of knowledge. He is the perfect person to discuss cheese with, especially in the run-up to Christmas when people are on the lookout for cheese selections. So, here's David now, kicking off with the difference between mass-produced, quickly-made cheeses versus small-batch cheeses, which are left to develop their texture over time. This is absolutely true. Not everything mass-produced is bad. And my guilty pleasure is I love laughing cow cheese triangles. OK, I shouldn't like it, but I really like them. But if you buy a block piece of cheese, it's made like Play-Doh. It comes out of a machine, they meld it all together. To make it strong, they play tricks with you. So a very strong cheese has lots of salt and lots of lactic acid in it. So your palate thinks, wow, this is strong. A very mild cheese has minimal amounts of salt, minimal amounts of acid, so it tastes mild. But they've manipulated that. A farm-made cheese, the milk and everything else has to come together. It takes time. It's like maturing a bottle of wine. The complex flavours come over time. If they say a cheese is four years old, it's quite likely it is four years old. But that four-year-old cheese was made 
It was vacuum packed. It was stuck in a very, very cold room so that they can keep the flavour how they want it. So after four years, it probably tastes very, very similar to the day it came out of the factory. It's a bit like battery hens and free-range chickens. They're both chicken. You can't tell them apart when they're uncooked, but when you taste them, there's a hell of a difference. So it's the same with cheese. You know, that is really the difference between something that's been mass-produced and something that's taken time over it. They're both fine. And, you know, we all like our burger occasionally. It's whether you live off burgers or whether you think, well, most of the time, I want to know where my meat comes from and I want to know who did it. I mean, if you come to Cambridge Market, the food stalls are fabulous. I buy all my fruit and my veg and my meat and everything else and fish from Cambridge Market because I know it's really good. David started working for Bob Wesley and Bob was a pioneer. He used to work for one of the Stilton makers as a cheesemaker when all you could get was basically Dutch cheese, English cheese, cheddar and a bit of brie. And the brie is like the brie you get now from very bad places, which has a line of chalk in the middle of it because they've cut it before it's ripe. He introduced me to selling proper artisan cheeses and I've carried it on. I was one of the first people doing farmers markets because we are affineurs. We buy the cheeses very young. We have humidity and temperature controlled rooms where we ripen the cheeses. A soft cheese may take a few weeks to ripen and a hard cheese could take many years. So that is really the important part of the business. Otherwise I might just as well go to a wholesaler and buy the same as everyone else. David's relationships with his cheesemakers stretch back many years and he's always looking for new cheeses to try. And I don't necessarily like every cheese I stock, but I know it's good. I taste everything. All his British cheeses he buys direct from small production farmers. When we recorded this, he'd just taken stock of his new batch of Glastonbury cheddar truckles. I think I've bought about 120 of those, and I'm hoping they'll all go by Christmas. They weigh a couple of kilos each, and they are my favourite cheese. And I take a whole one home and we work our way through it. And Christmas Eve, I mean, you can imagine, everybody wants cheese for Christmas, and then everybody's on a diet for a month. On Christmas Eve, we go home, we open up our finest bottle of wine, my wife and I, and we open one of those cheddars, we have crusty bread, and that's our Christmas Eve meal, just that. So that is my favourite cheese. They've been made for us every year for over 50 years. Unpasteurised, traditional fabulous cheeses and I'm really excited about that but on the other hand I'm one of the few people in this country who physically goes abroad and buys my cheeses abroad I don't use a wholesaler last week I was lucky enough to get away before Covid closed everything down and I went to Paris I bought six whole Comte Comte is from the Franco-Swiss border. It's made from unpasteurised cow's milk. It's a bit like Swiss Gruyere, but milder. Aged for four months minimum. It's great with red or white wine, or alongside some fresh fruit and a few chutneys. So that's 50 kilos each one. Comte has protected designation of origin status, so it can only be produced in the French Comte region. Now the Comte I get is made by a guy called Charles Arnaud. I've never seen his cheeses anywhere else in this country. And he's a big producer. But I go there, I taste maybe 12 cheeses. 
Now this you can't do if you use a wholesaler. And I think they're the best Comte you can find. You know, every supermarket sells a Comte. This is 18 months when I get it, probably up to two and a half years old when I finish selling it. You can get ones in the supermarkets, but they don't taste like that. So yeah, I'm very passionate about what I do, and there are very, very few people in this country who do cheese the way I do. There's lots of people selling cheese, but the majority of them are buying them for a wholesaler or an agent or something like that. So I look and I taste everything. What was that? I think it was, blessed are the cheesemakers. What's so special about the cheesemakers? Well, obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. My advantage against some of the large people who do really good cheeses that I stand in the gutter. So my rent is a lot less than theirs. But you can see by the crowds and the queues we have, people who know food and like food look out for us. Can I have 100 grams of the Oxford Blue, please? It's a really good cheese, this, but it has to be good if we can sell it in Cambridge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> What's the co like? Yeah. Near Oakhampton, North Devon, and it's a 17th century recipe, so it must be pretty good. They keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. 100 grams of the Northumberland nettle as well. It's Jersey milk, and it's got nettles and herbs in it. But it's also quite good if you have any left over, if you melt it down as a cheese sauce, it gives you a herby cheese sauce. Yeah. Do well for a nice cheese board? Yeah. <laughs> Lovely cheese. You need a bag? Oh, no, I should be white cheese. Thanks. Now, many of my constituents have come up to me and said, What? Are we getting out of Europe? I'm sorry, uh, what are we getting out of Europe? <laughs> come on, Gerald, mate. I must be honest, my fear is Brexit. That is not a political fear, it's a, a commercial fear from my point of view. As I said before, I go to France and various places to buy and pick up stuff. I mean, I cannot as a single person, you know, a one-man bandish, afford to be sat in a car park for four days while my food dies or not being here or having to fill out so many forms and pay so much to get it over here. So whether you believe in Brexit or not, if there is no deal, and I hope there will be a deal, will be that you may not see much in the way of continental cheeses. People can say, oh yeah, but we can eat English cheeses. But if I put that the other way round, if all you could get was French cheddar, not the French make cheddar, would you want to eat French cheddar? You know, we all have things we specialise in. The French and the Italians and the Swiss and Spanish make cheeses that we can't reproduce. So, you know, we're going to lose those or we're going to have to pay an inordinate amount of money for good ones. You'll get your supermarket version, but that goes back to what I was saying before. So, yeah, I hope there's a deal, whatever your politics are, just so we can keep getting good stuff. Your business is, would you say it is half and half English and continental? Yeah, there's not a lot to choose. I mean, people always ask me, how many cheeses do you sell? I couldn't tell you at all how many cheeses I have. But most importantly, they're all as good as I can possibly get them, if you trust my palate. You know, that's the other thing. You've got to be able to trust my palate. But yeah. <laughs> so I asked David to pick out some notable cheeses that could catch your ear. 
There are some fabulous goat's cheeses and sheep cheeses. We do one from Sussex called Duddleswell. It's a used milk cheese, but it's made in 100-acre wood. So Winnie the Pooh makes that, so it goes down a treat with everyone. And the parmesan I sell is over three years old. I get some fabulous Spanish cheeses from a Spanish guy who's a really good friend of mine. And he's just opened up a restaurant in Cambridge, Mercado. That's on Green Street. Yeah, uh, Danny's Cheeses. He's been supplying, we've been friends for years. He supplies me with my Spanish cheeses. Again, he knows what he's talking about. They're fabulous. And over la fromage de la belle France qui s'appelle Camembert, s'il vous plaît. This is my first port of call for Cornish Yarg, which isn't available everywhere. Good friends of ours over the road are coming tonight, so uh, decided to treat them. <laughs> okay, here's something definitely worth noting. David also sells butter. Now, I try not to colour these recordings with my own opinion too much, but this stuff, it's lovely, and here's why. French butter, it's unpasteurised, small farm. And the thing about French butter is, I don't know whether people will agree, but they make fabulous butter because they slightly mature the cream. So it has flavour and farms will specialise just in making butter. It's not a by-product of a bit of milk that's left over. It is a really good butter. So, yeah, I mean, to me, I'm quite happy to eat water biscuits and my salted butter, or unsalted butter for that matter, as a snack, you know, forget the cheese, even though the cheese is lovely. I just think it's great. Anything that's good, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm just a, a gourmand rather than a gourmet. No, I, hopefully I'm a gourmet, but uh, I just think good food is a, a pleasure. Yeah. I don't know, I can't get enough cheese. I feel like a big mouse. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of interesting ones that people don't really know. We do a cheese called Hereford Hop made with Jersey milk and it's really creamy, it's tangy and toasted hops on the outside. Now it's not beer flavoured, it just gives it a slight edge and that is probably our most popular cheese that no one's heard of. Oh I love our Lancashire. Our Lancashire is a mild Lancashire, everybody's heard of Kirkhams and Stronger. This is made by the Shorrock family and it's mild and creamy and it's absolutely delicious in my opinion. It's not strong, but it's delicious. My Mondors, again, they're made by Charles Arnaud. They're not ones you see in this country, but they won a gold medal last year. So the Mondors are coming in middle to end of November. I want to buy some cheese! (laughs) I do a Gorgonzola, a Dolce Gorgonzola. That's not the hard Gorgonzola you heard of before. This is, like, creamy and mild and lovely. And it's great cooks. I just want people to enjoy good food, good cheese. What are you doing? I'm drinking wine and eating cheese and catching some rays, you know. So my theory is you can buy a bottle of wine and pay a lot of money from it from a supermarket. It's going to be good. But if you went to a specialist wine merchant, you're getting something that that guy has tasted. You're using his palate and you're getting something for the same price that is going to be different. And it's the same with the cheese. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm sorry if I'm a go on a bit, but I, I do feel strongly about this. As well he might, because it certainly works for him, and his customers appreciate his passion. 
That was David Fishman from Cambridge Market, and his stall is called Cheese Stall. It's currently operating Fridays and Saturdays opposite the Gap Shop. And just another thing I'd like to point out, he's got a great online shop, cheesestall.com. And amongst other things, he does over a dozen different cheese selection boxes. Now, each one has a theme like um, North Country cheeses, West Country cheeses, full-bodied wine cheese selections. And because we're about a month away, he also does a Christmas cheese box. Now, David told me that everything comes gift-wrapped. It comes with a description of all the cheeses in your selection and all are ready for Christmas and the New Year. But, you know, if you're local and... You could see this just by watching his stall. So many people go to his stall for advice and recommendations. You know, oh, I fancy the look of that. Can you recommend this to me? So if you make it to the market, he is well worth seeing. And that French butter, lovely stuff. (laughs) Cambridge 105 Radio. Kickstart your weekend. Saturday Breakfast with Matt Webb. I'm here every weekend to get you moving. I have the latest from the Cambridge News Desk on the hour and half hour. Problems on the A14, New Market Road or Mill Road? Well, if there are, you'll be the first to know in the travel. There's a full sports roundup at 8.30, including what's happening at Cambridge United and our other local clubs. Plus a look at the Saturday papers and local online publications at 10 to 9. That's Saturday Breakfast with me, Matt Webb, this weekend from 8. If you're like me, you've got a family and a business. And you want to protect what's most important when the chips are down. With Woodfine Solicitors, that's exactly what happens. I got a bespoke legal service from a friendly expert team. They really listened to what was going on and tailored their recommendations to my situation, which was, well, that's another story. Anyway, the best thing was that it all happened online. A few simple clicks and I had my quote. That freed up time to focus on everything else. Get the help you need when you need it most. Visit woodfinds.co.uk or call Cambridge 411421. Woodfinds, cutting through the red tape. What does your home need to feel complete? Gap Home Improvements have been helping customers give their properties that curb appeal for over 20 years. You've seen our vans in your area providing dedicated support to families across Cambridgeshire. Windows, doors, garden rooms, conservatories and warm roofs. We offer free quotations in a pressure-free environment. In person, on the phone or by video call, our consultants will help you realise your property's true potential. Call Cambridge 914 567 or visit gaphomeimprovements.co.uk today. More news now. Today, Saturday, Pimp My Fish is at Eddington until 2pm and tonight will be at the Bank Micropub in Willingham. Also in Eddington right now is Gorilla Kitchen again till 2pm. The geographer in Histon is still open as a shop and for takeaways and deliveries. Turpin's Brewery in Sawston is delivering and you can order from the online shop. Here's where we would normally bring you details of free food available now in and around Cambridge. However, we can tell you that the information is still available from the Olio app, which is free to download. Yes, and the Olio app is a great source of free food that would otherwise be wasted. Some examples of what's been recently available are some persimmons, Turkish coffee, leeks, plenty of products from Pret-a-Manger, a pointed cabbage and an unopened pack of sugar. And the other free food app called Too Good To Go 
is still operating too. It offers unsold food from restaurants and shops often at less than half price. Rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home, rather than it being binned at the end of the day's trading. It may be November, but there is still plenty of food to forage. I spoke with Steve Thompson, head chef at the Plough in Shepworth, about what's around for the taking. And although the plough is closed for inside use, Steve says they are doing takeaways. Uh, yeah, sadly we're going to be closed for eating in, but we will we'll be open for takeaways still, so that'll be lovely. What we've been picking today, first of all we started off in our garden this morning with a couple of little weeds that we think are wonderful herbs. So, um, hairy bittercress is the first one. Cardamine hirsuta is its kind of proper name. It's really nice herb. Uh, gardeners will know it really well. It grows in a little rosette with little round flowers. And it's got a lovely little mustardy, tangy, peppery flavour to it. And it's, it's, it's another one of those ones that people will know because it's a pain and they don't like it and everything like that. But it's wonderful to eat and it really should be used more in winter salads. The next one that we found in our back garden as well, which is the lovely Jack by the Hedge, which is just starting to come back up again. And we've talked about that a few times, Saliara petiolata is its proper name. And that's a lovely garlicky mustardy flavour, really nice, like chopped up. You can whack it through stir fries and things like that. Goes really well with like fruits and meats like lamb and things like that. Other thing that we have on the way to the woods today that we found is more wild mustard, which is just starting to pop up, which is Synapis arvensis. Yeah, it is as in its name. Charlock is another name for it, but yeah, taste of mustard. We do dry it out lovely for a nice little pot herb. What did you find in the woods? <laughs> so when we got up to the woods, we went for the lovely mushrooms that are in season right now. So we've just finished the ones that kind of associate, or certainly around here, that associate themselves more with trees. So now we're looking at the ones more in the leaf litter. So we've got uh, trooping funnel mushrooms, or in funded bully side geotropa, is their proper name. What do they look like then? So the clue's kind of in their name with a funnel. So they're a lovely goblet kind of funnel shaped. Um, they're quite tall. They've got nice long legs. Um, you've got, if you pick them, you'll see there's a really nice little woolly bottom to them at the bottom of the stipe. The gills are decurrent, so they run down the stem. And they've got a really, really distinctive smell to them. I think it's quite sickly sweet almost. It's, it's, it's mushroomy, but it's a sweet mushroomy smell. Is there anything else you could mistake that for? I mean, it's depending on your attention to detail, but not really, no. I mean, the other things that you're looking at, once they get to that size, so it's important to say there are some small clytocybe funnel mushrooms that are deadly poisonous, so get to know them more. But once you start to get sort of side plate size, there's not really anything other than the giant funnel, which is also edible and mm. not particularly common anyway, mm. that you could misplace it for. The ones that are edible that you were talking about, how big do they grow? The the uh, ones that aren't edible that are poisonous keep fairly small and they tend to grow more in rings and things like that, whereas trooping funnels do grow in the troops. It, it's, it's quite an easy, safe one to pick in my eyes, but it is in a lot of books. It is more as the advanced kind of intermediate. Oh, right. But the smell is a real dead giveaway to you. And so I think once you, if you go out with somebody who knows what they're doing with it, introduce you to it once you smell that smell it kind of it really stays with you i think i look forward to when <laughs> i could go on a foraging expedition or when you're going to start doing them yourself oh yeah definitely that'll be lovely then when we can all get together again and do things properly anything else that you would particularly recommend mushroom wise at the moment yes and i know it's one that you've eaten before uh seal bluets or a piss to they're all just popping up everywhere at the moment uh blue legs is another common name for them 
and you can get them in quite a few restaurants. They're really good. They're, they're one of my absolute favourites, and a lot of people don't put them in their kind of top five, top ten. But I really just think that they should be. There is a real simple way of cooking those up is, frankly, the only way to cook them in my eyes, is fry them off with loads of brown butter, add a generous helping of sherry, kind of reduce it by half, and then finish it with a little bit of cream. And they're absolutely wonderful. They're my favourite thing to have on toast in the morning, but they also hold up really well for, like, meaty sauces and everything like that. Sounds absolutely delicious. And again, are they fairly easy to spot? Yeah, I think so, really. I mean, if you have yourself a good feel, guys, feel blue, it's definitely a good beginner mushroom. With a half-decent intensity of detail, things you're going to confuse them for are other bluets. Which are not quite so edible, or...? No, they're all fine as well. I mean, you've got your wood bluets that are going to be the most likely one you're going to confuse them with, but the wood bluet is pretty much got a purple cap and purple gills as well, whereas the field blue is cream. It's just got its purple leg. I think there might be some, some growing out in the meadow quite near us, so I've got to go and have a look. Uh, I do believe they do grow outside your house, yes. Anything else at this time of year in November you'd recommend? Yeah, the final little shout-out I noticed the other day when I was walking around as well um, is figs. And there's a lot of green fruit on the fig trees that you see at the moment. And the leaves are looking still quite nice and big. So we use the leaves in a lot of things. We dry them out, and they have a lovely, almost coconutty flavour to them. So they're really good infusing things like panna cottas or custards. Can you do anything with the fruits? Yes, and the green fruits. So we often take the green fruit because, I mean, some of them will ripen, but quite a lot of them won't now. The green fruits we use quite a lot, and we make pickles with them. And the main thing we actually do is we stub them, so we prick them with a fork, and we put them into quite a salty, strong brine. So we're talking 20% salt and 20% sugar to water. So if you've got one litre of water, 200 grams sugar, 200 grams salt, cover your figs with them in a jar and leave them to sit for a couple of months. It gives them a wonderful, almost olive-like kind of quality. And then you can use them as olives, so they can go really nicely with, like you can make them into a green fig tapenade, or if you dice them up really small, they go really nicely in a butter sauce for fish and things like that. But they're, yes, they're something I think is underused, the green fig, and it's got a really nice flavour to it still. That sounds really nice. And I know we've got a fig tree in our garden um, and I'm going to go and have a look, see if it's got any figs on it shortly. But you said that they can also grow wild. Yeah, I think they're probably escapees from gardens and things like that. But I have, there's a couple of spots where we go on walks where we find the fig trees in the wild. And they're and quite... like to nick a few then. Yeah, exactly. And fig trees are quite distinctive. They're sort of large, almost hand-shaped leaves, aren't they? Yes, exactly that. And yeah... And the smell of the leaves as well, as I say, coconutty almost. That's well worthwhile having a look for if you don't have a fig tree in your garden. That sounds excellent. Anything else on the nut front or anything else at the moment? So nuts are just starting to really go now. They've all been got by the squirrels from what we've found. But we're still going on the hedgerows and still going on the fruits. So we just picked some crab apples for lunch today. And we've still got sloes and hawthorns and rose hips going around. So there's still loads and loads of stuff to gather getting ready for winter. I hope people are going to go and carry on foraging when they're walking around when they're not allowed to do anything else. So, Well, we're allowed unlimited exercise at the moment, aren't we? So going for a little forage while you go for your walk and exercise every day is a wonderful way to pass the time. I will speak to you again in December. Let's look forward to hopefully coming out of lockdown again, perhaps for Christmas. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Ah, it would be nice indeed. Many thanks to Steve Thompson of The Plough in Shepworth. Those figs sound good. There's a fig tree by the Round Church in Cambridge. It's just opposite Bald Brothers. I may just go and take a look. Our next item is one from the vaults. 
It's dated the 29th of November 2014, and it's Rosie Sykes talking about Christmas puddings, which is rather relevant, but she goes on to talk about sourcing good ingredients, and that's always relevant. So let's listen to all of it. Uh, My first ever job as a chef was for an incredible woman called Joyce Moliner who had a restaurant down in Dartmouth in Devon called The Carved Angel. She used to, she very sensibly realised that the end of the season in Dartmouth was September and she had a large staff, so she got us making 1,500 Christmas puddings. So on our very, our less busy days, we'd be steaming about 50 puddings a day and then we'd have to wrap them and write the labels And then a hilarious man had come in a Ford Escort and um, gradually transport them all to London where they were sold in Sally Clark's shop in South Kensington and at David Mellor's. So that was my, um, that was actually my second experience of Christmas pudding (laughs) making, but uh, uh, certainly a very big production line. It kind of prepared me for, for what I'm been doing now yeah so are there any particular tips for making your christmas right yeah the sooner you can make it the better i think one of the things that we put in ours is some crystallized ginger i think that's quite a nice thing to bear in mind i also put figs in mine and some fresh fruit so we've in this one we've made this year we've used quince so we've made a quince puree but in the one at the carved danger we used to use bramley apples um, and that keeps it nice and moist and it sort of lightens it. Because the thing that I, I found interesting is that a lot of people say, oh, a dried fruit pudding, it just doesn't appeal to me, which I find extraordinary because, it, <laughs> you know, we've all grown up with them. Yes, um, I find it extraordinary too, but anyway. I just think, yeah, um, and again, uh, candied peel is something you have to be a bit careful about because a lot of the dried fruit this day these days is as oiled and re-sugared as well. Um, Re-sugared? Well, often you'll find with things like dried mango and cranberries, for example, they'll they'll have oil on them and sometimes you can even feel the crystalline sugar. But I think they make a kind of sugary, oily syrup because of the drying process. You certainly have to be a bit careful about the dried fruit that you use. Right, so... How can you avoid? You need to go for quality. And with things like candy peel, you don't need very much. So actually go for the best quality you can. See if you've got a local Italian deli, because in Italy they're still making wonderful crystallised fruit. You know, they use cedro, those massive lemons and orange caps. So a cap is just a whole half of orange that you've taken the fruit out and dried. And also I think it's nice to have a mixture of orange and lemon and some places you can even get pomelo or grapefruit. Try and go for a little mixture. Mm. Um, It's worth sourcing something really good, Mm. I think. Well, sourcing is quite a big issue, really. When you were at Fitzbilly's, how how did you arrive at the the best people for the uh, the things that you used? Yeah, well, it was a big task, and I'd promised myself when I went there that it would be something that I would really work on. And it took a while. We had about five or five or so different veg suppliers before we came to find what worked really well for us. So my problem mainly was that I would say to my suppliers, if you can't get me a certain thing from the country I've asked for it from, so, for example, lemons 
come from, generally I would get them from Italy or Spain, but really nice unwaxed lemons. But I wouldn't want a replacement. And they they found that very hard to understand. They'd try and do my thinking for me. But mm. um, eventually I found... Duncan Catchpole, who runs Kofco. Kofco is the Cambridge, Cambridge Organic company. company. He has been making veg boxes for many, many years, but I think he had a couple of wholesale customers, and that's how I found him. We forged a, a fantastic relationship because, although it meant I could only get my veg once a week, I was lucky enough to be able to buy generally pretty big quantities and the quality of the stuff just made it so worthwhile. He's using um, lots of local growers and he just kind of coordinates them and brings all their stuff together and then sells it on. And one of the relationships he's made is with the uh, organic veg garden at Audley End. So he picks up stuff from them once a week and I would take advantage of that and take most of that produce. And the thing that Audley End's doing, which is amazing, is they are growing old and unusual varieties of many things. So, for example, they have something like 120 varieties of apples espaliered onto the outside walls of the walled garden. Perhaps 120 varieties of apples and pears, I'm not sure which. And of those, there's something like six varieties of cooking pear. Now, a cooking pear is something that people don't even know. I didn't know it existed. <laughs> and they are quite extraordinary. But if you cook them, they're incredible. They're sort of a mixture between a pear and a quince. But they're very special. Mm. And that's the kind of thing you just would never find otherwise. Mm. Well, one of the things that you had on at Fitzbilly's once, which quite amused me, was duck hearts on skewers. It was your uh, Valentine's Day. <laughs> 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 are, are duck hearts easily come by? Because I've spent a lot of time in southwest France, I know a lot about ducks and I found a supply. They were at, they're actually French and they would bring me hearts and gizzards and but, but they are quite hard to come by because again I'd make sure that they were from good husbandry and once a year I'd get goose from them as well which is very difficult to get if you want it in quantity to serve in a restaurant it's actually quite hard to get I'd get goose legs to braise and with quinces or something like that yeah. but uh, yes I like a bit of I thought I always thought a bit of comedy on Valentine's Day is quite a good plan <laughs> Meddlers. Do you ever use meddlers? I do. Um, they're not the easiest thing to use, I've, I don't I've just think. bought a kilo. Oh, so. have you? <laughs> What's your plan? Well, I was going to make meddler jelly. Yes. It's the only thing to do, really. Mm. I mean, I'd love to think... I think I've put them in a crumble once with apples. Mm. But they're actually quite tricky, hard work uh, fruit. So actually the best thing to do is make a jelly, mm. I think. Awesome. And to have the jelly with, I was thinking of having it with turkey on yes, Christmas Day. Yes, it would actually. be perfect for that mm. or with some game or, mm. you know. I think a bit of jelly is nice with a lot of roast meats, even with pork or or if you're having cold meats as well. Mm. Um, but it's a nice flavour meddler. Mm. Um, you don't see them very often. No, very rare. And apparently hasn't been a great year for meddlers, I gather, from <laughs> someone I know with a meddler tree who normally <laughs> supplies me. So, And that was Rosie Sykes, as always, full of interest.
Time for some more news now. The Cambridge Cheese Company in All Saints Passage is delivering and the shop is still open too. Cambridge Cookery is delivering its gourmet meals now. Just let them know when you order if you want delivery or if you'll go to collect. There's a delivery charge of £7. Cafe Abantu in Hobson Street is open for takeaways as is Stir in Chesterton Road. Malloy's is doing chef-prepared mix-and-match meal kits. For example, one serving of meat, potato, veg and dessert is £24, or they can be bought separately, in which case they come to slightly more. Malloy's is also delivering fluffy American pancakes with crisp, streaky bacon and syrup 9 to 12pm every day, and they're also doing bacon baps, mushroom baps and a full English bap. You can collect food from Thrive in Norfolk Street or order through Foodstuff. And you can order Chelsea buns, cakes, brunch and other treats from Fitzbilly's website. Maruzio is delivering. Phone 0795 773 to order. You can collect from the Pizza Hatch too. Querico Tapas is delivering his tapas to your home. The menu for two is £38. Check the Tapas Cambridge Instagram account for details. Uh, Midsummer House has announced details of its Christmas box. It it can be ordered now and up until the 18th of December. Delivery is on the 23rd or the 24th of December. There are limited quantities, though, so it is better to order soon. The details are on the Midsummer website, but briefly, there's a Christmas Eve dinner, a Christmas Day breakfast, a Christmas Day lunch and a Boxing Day lunch, and all meals come with wine. Uh, To give you an example, the Christmas Day lunch includes Conte cheese shortbread, artichoke soup with truffle butter and crouton, stuffed ballotine of turkey, roast potatoes, glazed carrots, honey glazed parsnips, pig in blankets and cauliflower cheese, truffled baron bigod cheese, sherry trifle and it comes with two bottles of wine. There are extras too. Midsummer House carrot cakes, a selection of chocolates and a loaf of sourdough bread with salted butter from the dairy estate. The Christmas box is designed for two people and costs £650. And there is the familiar sound of green onions signalling the start of our job section. Cambridge Cheese Company in All Saints Passage needs a new team member. It's a part-time position, 16 to 20 hours per week, with more in the run-up to Christmas. Applications need to be in by the 13th of November, and you can contact them via Instagram or their website. The Old Crown in Girton has a vacancy for a commie chef. The salary is £17,500 a year. And finally, Café Abantu in Hobson Street is looking for a new team member to undertake a variety of roles, including barista, cook and bottle washer. It's for 20 to 30 hours a week, with some full weeks, and you'll need to be able to work between 7am and 6pm. Now, experience in food and plating to order is essential, as well as experience with high demands of brunch. A genuine interest in coffee, baking and cooking, that's really essential. So pop in or send them an email and that is about all the time we have for today don't forget we are here on alternate saturdays at 12 p.m repeated on sundays at 2 and then again on mondays at 6 p.m there's also the podcast which will be available early next week coming up next on cambridge 105 radio is pete butchers with jazz today followed by polish waves at five roundabout with tony barnfield is at six 
The Big Band Show at 7, Let the Good Times Roll at 8, Rebel Arts Radio is at 9, Stagger at 10, and uh, this is a good one to note, Evening Under Lamplight is at 11 o'clock. Now this is a brilliant show, it's been running for years. Robert Louis is the presenter, and he has a perfect voice for a Sunday evening. But from us, that's all for today. We'll be back on the 21st of November. But until then, goodbye. 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 Goodbye.